Hey, it's Aaron and Jim back with another commission podcast. Uh, this is a this is another noodle bender, but in a t- totally different way from Donnie Darko. Uh, oh yeah, this was a um, a Christmas present purchased for one Alex Myers, uh, and it looks like Lauren, Annie, and Rick, or Anne rather, and Rick teamed up to to pitch in to commission it for uh, Alex here, and uh, he wanted to thank them all for that. Uh, and it is June to give you an idea. It's June first to give you an idea of how long it takes us to get through our queue. Yeah, the backlog is real. Um, but uh, Merry Christmas, Christmas in June. Um, I present a little background for Alex. We're we're doing the 1999 Paul Thomas Anderson movie, written and directed Magnolia. And uh, interesting choice. You, I have never seen this movie before. You? I had not seen this movie. Okay. I had seen. I think I had seen that frog scene before, but I didn't realize it was from this movie. And you know what? Because I remember every single time I bring up Fishnado or when it originally hit in Fargo, people said, you must, Magnolia must have driven you crazy. (laughs) And fortunately, I didn't remember any of that because when the frog storm Mm -hmm. came, uh, by the way, spoilers for everything. Of course. uh, It was kind of shocking. Um, But let, let me get into what, let me let Alex introduce this. He says, I was only 14 or 15 the first time I saw Magnolia, which is far too young to really understand it. Mm-hmm. Yes. That said, it remained one of my favorite movies precisely because of its depth. The themes of parent and child relationships have become really important to me in the intervening years. I first saw the movie with my dad and older sister, who both loved it, and have vivid memories of going through the frame film frame by frame with them looking for Exodus 8-2 references. These experiences have been punctuated by the fact that my dad committed suicide several years ago, and mm. since then, everyone in the family has struggled to redefine their relationships with him. So he's got a couple of things that he wants to talk about, but I figured we'd kind of discuss the film and then get to those themes if we missed any. Um, I can't imagine one of my best friend's father, who was a veterinarian, committed suicide on Christmas Day. Ooh. And... I mean, to say it has a profound effect on one is probably an understatement, especially since yeah. for her, I think she was 10 or 11 when it happened. Um, it was completely out of nowhere because she described her dad as like happy and he liked working with animals and she wanted to be a vet. And, you know, there was no suicide note or if there was, she wasn't privy to its content. So it's kind of like this giant question mark, like your life is going and it's not a car accident. It's just a suicide. Like that's right. got to be, so I, you have my sympathies. Uh, I can't really, yeah, that's a horrible situation. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because Magnolia is all about, you know, parent child relationships, the toxic nature of them and what impacts mm-hmm. they, they have on children. Right. And, and the regret that the parents have, the, the, potential and hopeful forgiveness in some of those scenarios um the the idea of can you heal from these things or do they affect you permanently like all of those things are wrapped up in this movie and i I, it's it's a very focused look at those things it doesn't Mm -hmm. kind of veer off into the the more pleasant relationships that you might have with a parent Mm -hmm. uh but yeah in the thing that it does i think it's i i don't know if masterpiece is a bad word for this i because i it's well. I'm glad to hear you say that because when we first got done watching the movie, I could tell that you were skeptical about a lot of because it's a lot to take in, and it's it is. literally a lot to take in. It's over three <laughs> hours long, which yeah. I thought was a 
one of its charms. Mm-hmm. Because there's a couple points where I felt like maybe they were arriving to a point, and then I looked and I'm like, oh, we still have like an hour and a half to go. Yeah. And also the way this movie unfolds in the beginning, where they talk about all these crazy coincidences, mm-hmm. made me prime to think of this movie as a puzzle. Uh, and I kept right. on, and but I felt like I was constantly struggling to keep up. And now, but, after I've seen the whole movie, I should have just relaxed and let it wash over me because that's what's designed to do. But it makes you think it's going to be kind of like a, a puzzle mystery when really it's not. It's just a straightforward, yeah, these no, I, interlocking coincidences. There's nothing to figure out, right? And that that's the part. So I, I read the New York Times review of this thing, and mm. they were basically like, the first two hours is incredible, the last hour just falls down. And I have the complete opposite view. I, I was think, about to say the same. I think the first, the opening sequence is very, very Cohen-esque, which mm-hmm. to me, like, forces me to get in the mindset of, I need to figure this out. Right. Some, something is going down here, and I need to understand it. Uh, but there's so much thrown at you immediately off the bat. I, I think the beginning of this movie is actually the weakest part of it. I, and it just gets better and better as it goes. Okay, well, I mean, that's like, yes, the setup where you don't know. You literally are thrown into the deep end with these characters, and you don't know, and they're, you're given a lot of hints. And I want to see this movie a couple more times because I do feel like, much like The Godfather, you never, you know, like you can see the movie once and perfectly understand it, but I feel like you'll get a deeper, richer appreciation for yeah. the characters and things you weren't looking for because you didn't know now you'll they'll they'll be telegraphed and and you'll appreciate the storytelling even more right and i do actually think the beginning the the theme of it the note is yeah. needs to be hit there yeah. and they do hit it but i feel like it's just a little awkward it's it's a little too much it's a little too fast and furious at the beginning and uh i i just i don't i don't like the narration i think the narration is just plain bad um, it's interesting because you know who that is. I think it's poorly narrated. No, I don't. It's Ricky Jay. Who's that? Who he's a famous stage magician. He's the one that like um, okay th- uh, throws car. He like can throw cards with like crazy precision into watermelon walls and th- yeah, what's yeah. Happening. Okay. He's uh, you'd recognize him if you saw him. Maybe so. But and I didn't know this when I first saw it. But I think that that's a little intentional misdirection because if you do know that it's Ricky Jay, then you're kind of expecting some kind of trick or reveal yeah and if anything i thought that the the third act where it begins with those characters in unison singing this song and then eventually leads to a frog storm Uh lets you know that there is no mechanics to understand here this is any this is a purely emotional catharsis that you're experiencing with the characters and yeah um, I, I noticed that the term opera and operatic and melodrama kept getting used again and again. And I watched the behind-the-scenes documentary. Um, hmm, okay. I forget what it's even called. It's just a, an hour-and-a-half thing where they just filmed every aspect of this thing from the pre-production where Paul Thomas Anderson sat all the producers and the set designers and the casting agents and like everyone. And he made them watch like these classic movies like Network. Because mm-hmm. uh, he's like this; these are these are the emotional beats, and these are kind of the character archetypes that I'm working with. To them building the sets, to them working out how to do the frog storm, to his frustration with working with these child actors because <laughs> they get these performances in like the, this kid Stanley. He'd be like, okay. 
make your mouth go slack. Now squint your eyes more, more. Stop, stop. <laughs> That's the face I want you to make at this beat. Like he's literally puppeteering wow. to get these natural reactions. And it was so frustrating because he would get this stuff in a groove and then like, well, their five hours is over. They got to go to school. You got to wait until the next day. And you could tell he was visibly irritated by, uh, you know, the, the, he needed these performances from these kids, but it was such a struggle and like, you know, such a, such a painstaking thing for him that he probably, it's, and you know, I'm not complaining because the child labor laws are put into place to protect them from people like Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> and Stanley Kubrick's of the world. Right. Right. So, but, uh, that said, you couldn't tell because I thought all the, ch- the, the child performances were amazing. And there's not that many yeah. of them. There's essentially Dixon, the the young rapper, and Stanley. And I thought he was best. Uh, Stanley didn't do it for me. Really? Yeah. Well, it's it's partially such... his his wise beyond his years child speech, which is a pet peeve of mine. Hmm. Sorry, there is no such thing as a wise a wise child. They what do you mean don't by have that? the experience for it. Like he he starts monologuing at the camera at one point during the the quiz show. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget the exact speech that he was giving because I was so annoyed with this is totally. Don't you think that that? But but here's the thing: did that happen before? That happened before the characters sang in unison because I think I interpreted that as almost out of universe. Like that's a it is that's yeah the, that would be an adult reflecting upon his childhood experiences and talking about the absurdity of it all for sure. Yeah, uh, it's just it's tough for me to get past that okay. when I'm like, well, they're showing a kid give this speech and I don't. There, there is no child who could give this speech. No, because you can't. I mean, that's the tragedy of like being stuck with bad parents. Is for all you know, this is just normal. Sure. Yeah. And the only way you can contextualize it is to kind of internalize these terrible things they're doing to you and try to, you know, I mean, that's uh, why that character doesn't really work for me because he seems to, he seems like I said to be wise beyond his years, and wisdom requires experience. Wisdom requires. Uh, time and he doesn't have that he can't possibly have these insights because he doesn't understand enough about life yeah uh so the the stanley fell a little flat for me um but otherwise like every character just i mean they're all reflections of a certain type of existence a certain type of relationship between people uh that really works so what you you mentioned something about redemption and how parents regret and all that i found that in every instance, the parents' need to unburden themselves at the end was a profoundly selfish act. Which makes sense, because these characters are all painted as profoundly yeah. selfish people. Like, they didn't give a shit about right. their children. In fact, in some cases, preyed upon their children. Sure. Uh, and they're they're essentially emotionally vomiting on their children, and like, whew, I feel better now. I got all that out. Now I'm going to die. And you guys can figure out what to do with it. And I, I like the the um, is it Marcy? Is it a female character? I man, I don't, I don't know, know any of these people's names. Yeah, Stanley's the only one. Frank Mackey, I know his name. Frank. Um, <laughs> but when I like the fact that she completely stonewalled her father. And at first, you think ah, right. I think you're tempted to think, man, what a bitch, what an entitled, selfish. She, she's doing drugs and all that. But I kind of. Barely early, early on, like man, this is such an extreme reaction. There's got to be something. Like I don't know whether he just neglected his daughter, mm-hmm. but it turns out that um, I mean, I guess we don't know for certain, but I'm pretty sure that he sexually abused her. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like all of these people, 
Um, so it's interesting, to, I guess, to compare the two older men dying of cancer, right? Yeah. Um, because one of them on his deathbed has a, a somewhat profound sense of regret, and, and he kind of embraces the regret, and he looks at it sort of in the face and just says, this is what my life was, I regret it. Um, you know, but but you can use that regret in a, in a weird way is what, what he says, like, take it and use it. Um, whereas the game show host, uh-huh. whose name I don't know, um, he, he looks at that regret and can't even face it. I mean, because in the end, he won't even admit what he's done. He can't. He does the lame, I don't know. Which is complete horseshit. Right. He knows exactly what he's done. You, Unless you have Alzheimer's or something and you have literally or, forgotten the events of your or past. Or maybe he was so coked up in booze that he blacked out during it. But still, you know, I, maybe, thought, I thought it was obviously, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it didn't feel like a full confession. Exactly. Like he was telling yeah. us to his wife, was, again, you're an asshole. Like, why mm-hmm. are you in burden? I, I, I don't know. No, that is that is a selfish act, certainly. Um, like, part of I, me... I do understand, like, where he comes from when he says, look, I don't want you to to be made a fool by having to pretend that you don't know. Uh-huh. Or, or or just pretending that you don't know, not having to. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he is doing it for himself, mostly. Yes. But there's also, like, this sort of honesty in the relationship that he wants to get back. Uh, which might actually be a good thing for them if he were to actually admit the things he's done. Well, that's the other thing is he's dead. Like, I feel very strongly about relationships that the only reason, like, if you've done something that's dishonest and hurtful and bad, uh, the only reason to come clean with that rather than, well, I guess if you want to stay in the relationship, Mm -hmm. you got to come clean and you got to be ready to blast it down the bedrock and deal with all the mistrust and anger that this dishonesty is, but if you don't intend to do that, yeah, it seems like it's selfish to just be like, "This is what I did, and now I'm going to die or leave you." Sure, you know, it's like you're just emotionally devastating someone with, for no good reason. It seems like it's uh, almost sadistic, or again, profoundly selfish. Because I want to feel better, I want to mm-hmm. feel like I'm a good person, and I'm going out of this world with a clean slate. So I'm going to unburden all these things, and now you have to deal with it, and I won't. Which uh, is the same pattern that this guy right. has expressed in his life. So l- let me ask you this. I, I understand that sentiment, certainly, mm-hmm. um, and I think I mostly agree with you. Uh, is it also not good to give them the proper context to view those events through for them? Like, what do you mean? For, for them to be able to contextualize those things in their life, uh, to have actual facts and be able to deal with the realities of the situation as opposed to questioning like why did this go wrong or what happened here i don't understand well that's like so that's like a very matrix like question is ignorance bliss or is it better to know the true right squalid state of your affairs and i would say that like it would be akin to morpheus freeing neo just to blow his brains out five minutes later (laughs) you know it's like okay but that has a certain finality to it whereas sure so it's like yet it's i guess I'm playing devil's advocate here a bit. Yeah, I know, and you're making me wrestle with issues that are are real and complex because they I are don't, very complex. Like, yeah. like, 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 I don't know. I mean, I guess I would say that I always want to to know the truth of a situation, but on the other hand, if the truth of the situation involves a relationship that's going to end, mm-hmm. maybe not. Okay. Maybe not. Like, do you want to know? Like, like for example, like seven year olds dying of cancer. Do you tell them on their deathbed there's no Santa Claus? Is that important to you? <laughs> right. Like, if it is, like, that, to me, is a fundamental understanding of what the child needs in that situation 
and you coming clean with the nature of the world and reality versus what they need from you right now. Uh-huh. So I guess that's if, 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 if in any situation you can analogize it to telling a seven year old there's no Santa Claus <laughs> before they die of cancer, you probably shouldn't do it. Probably. So and that's yeah. the thing. Like, I don't know, because here's the thing. You could argue that it wasn't a selfish act because now he's giving his wife the tools she needs to rebuild the relationship and perhaps save their daughter in some real way. Okay. Whereas if he stayed silent, that would always be a mystery because it seems like his wife never realized that he was a philanderer or a cheat. Like, it wasn't even like an open secret. That was just completely... um, But then it does seem like in the back of her head she knew maybe Mm -hmm. this new information about him being a philanderer led her to suspect that he molested his daughter. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. There again, this is why it's a great movie, because I want to say that both of these men are assholes, but, you know, Frank T.J. Mackey is a broken human being that's going through, that's that's spending his life in a bunch of shallow pursuits that are going to lead him... To exactly the same situation, he might even die one step more lonely, that he won't even have a son that hates him. Sure. He's just going to have nobody, and his father, maybe trying to reach out to him, is going to allow him to congeal to having, like, real human relationships with people? Maybe. I mean, he breaks down at the end of this and, you know... uh calls his calls his dad an asshole in the best way possible yeah uh the most forgiving way possible <laughs> yeah but we don't see beyond that right so like it's still kind of up in the air for tom cruise's character i suppose well don't you think that also one of the themes in the movie is this tom cruise character has built an emotion he doesn't feel anything he doesn't oh, yeah. let himself feel anything absolutely um actively works against it yes like that's the thing like he couldn't handle the reporter asking basic questions about um yeah. You know his 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 background and trying to poke holes in what is obviously this in, inflated protectionary ego that he's built around himself. Right, Whereas him I, cr- breaking down and crying that might be the first honest emotion he's felt in twenty years. Right, and I want to talk about it a little bit um, in that context because you know I've I've got a rocky history with my family, so this feels like a movie that's kind of custom tailored to me in certain ways. Now I I don't feel like I had an abusive relationship with my family. I think we just had differences of opinions um, in the, (laughs) the most important sense. Uh, I would say that you do though, like your family disowning you over uh, philosophical, religious differences. mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they, they think it's for your own good, but so does parents that are literally burning their children with irons. Like, you know, like that's always the rationale. Right, but I don't. Uh, but I think like standing up for what you believe in in a lot of cases mm-hmm. is the right thing to do. Yeah. So like, it's tough to blame them too much. I I just I don't feel like. I wonder it, if you ever have a child, abusive. whether that will flip for you. Uh, it might, yeah. Because that's the thing. Like, I guess I felt I didn't have really strong feelings, and I was more conciliatory about like, well, you know, they just got to do what they got to do until I had a kid, and just how. Hmm. Fucking unnatural it is to utterly reject them. Sure, yeah. Uh, so, and again, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying your mom and dad are terrible people. Um, <laughs> right. I quite like your father, but it's you know you can you can you can be abused a child abuser and still be a, a pitiable individual or someone that's you know because I I also don't sure. think it's 
without cost. Like I imagine, like you know, oh yeah, it's just, it's certainly come at great cost to my life. Um, yeah, and I'm but, even thinking like when I think of my family, I, I get this complicated history of violence in my family and anger, anger issues. Like hmm. my dad, uh, you know, would rough me up from time to time. Was pretty emotionally abusive. Okay. And yeah, I had a lot of complicated feelings about that. But when I hear him talk about my grandfather, my grandfather used a horse buggy whip. I don't actually know what that is. I mean, it's a it's a whip to whip horses when you're riding a buggy. Like okay. it's a long rod right. with a whip that you use. He would whip, right. literally whip my dad and my uncle hmm. for punishments for fairly hmm. minor infractions too. And my dad is like, when he would speak of it, he's like, um, and this was never in the context, like when he was beating me with like, like a, a newspaper or a belt or his hand, he would never be like, well, at least I'm not using a whip. But yeah, I could yeah. tell after talking to him that he's like, I want to get through my life without ever having to use a whip on my son. <laughs> That's a right? lofty goal. Yeah. But then I, Worthwhile. I'd hear him talk about the stories my grandfather tell his grandfather, who's oh, a Jesus, you know, just came across the boat from Germany. Now we're in the Middle Ages. No. And we're talking, you know, some medieval type. Right. Tor- and I could see my grandfather like, well, I never want to pour boiling water on my son. <laughs> but, and like, I got to the point where like, I've never had to lay hands on my son. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a victory. And maybe all the moderation that my forebears gave, you know, in there, like, okay, like, my dad could have easily, like, well, I was raised with a whip. I got hit with switches and stuff. Sure. That's what's going to work for you, too, kid. But they always found one level of more civility to give me the foundation to where I can maybe go through life without hitting my son. Yeah, I mean, that's the ideal of society. You get better and better as time goes on. But I've also appreciated how, like, I got in mind that this is, I was going to be the one that raised the perfect gen. He's not going to be fucked up at all. And it's clear <laughs> to, by, by either combinations of genetics or just the way, like, the anxieties and stuff that I have inside of me, like, you can't help passing on bad traits to your children. Right. And, like, I don't know that, like, it's, it's it seems like that throughout human history, it's just, you know, you try to do better and better and better, and then sometimes there's setbacks. Like, you know, maybe there'll be uh, a famine or a depression, and things get tougher, and people turn to alcohol and drugs, and that sets things back. And I, I think the most relevant storyline um, to this particular discussion is the one of Stanley and his father. Uh, because his father is absolutely... Um, he, he's a slave driver on this kid, right? He's angry when... When the kid fails, he always pushes him to, he, he to only, exceed expectations. He, yeah. He and it's just too much pressure for Stanley. And sure. He, and he has a breakdown. He can't handle it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that that is certainly a type of abusive relationship, even if the father doesn't see it and if the father thinks it's for his own good. Yeah. I mean, that was the heartbreaking when he wet his pants because it's like I got the impression that Stanley would do would bear up into anything, but his, like, biology let him down. Right. Like, right. I literally can't keep from pissing my pants. No one can. Sure. Yeah. So this is happening now. And the you mentioned Wise Beyond His Years. I thought it was interesting when he came to his father and said, I need you to stop being... I can't remember... You need to be nicer to me. You need to be nicer to me. Like, I wonder if kids... Because we talked about how kids internalize this guilt and shame and abuse. Sure. um, And they just... It's it's grist for their psychological mill, right? Mm -hmm. I I wonder what would happen, like, if kids were self-aware enough to to recognize that this isn't normal, that I'm being abused, and could actually say to their parents, like, something like that. Now... Yeah. You know, there's really pathological cases where you just get the worst beating of your life. But I wonder if, like, more sure. minor cases, that would 
be a moment of clarity or sobriety that a parent would need to be like, you're right. I am, instead of building you up and preparing you to be a successful adult, I am just mining you for everything I can get. Yeah. All of my self-esteem, all of my self-worth I'm putting on you, and I want you to carry me. Yeah, when you're asking your kids to make your money for you, yeah, something has gone fundamentally wrong. And that's uh, like that's the thing. Is like everything that I saw in this movie, like I've experienced or seen other people experience in real life. Like this, mm-hmm. like just happened this year. Um, one of my uh, friends had a estranged father who was dying of cancer. Reach out and hadn't heard from him for twenty years, and right. I'm like, and it is, it's a mind fuck. Like, sure, huh? You, when all the times I needed you and all the different things in life, I couldn't even have reached out and found you if I wanted to. Yeah. And now you're dying and you want me. Pretty selfish. Pretty selfish. But, you know, like nine times out of ten, the response is never, fuck you, I'm not interested. It's like, okay, I'm going to try. So that that need to connect to your parents is so strong. And I wonder, that's the thing, like, I wonder a lot of times, like, what am I going to do when my mom's on her Beth, her death, her Beth Beth dead? dead, yep her deathbed and if and I don't think she will because she is a stubborn bitch but I wonder <laughs> if she calls to like you know to make peace with me like what my reaction will be right because right now in the studio I'm like no I'm just I'm not angry about it I'm just not interested I'm not interested right. in helping you yeah. feel better about yourself before you shuffle off into the great beyond well that's interesting that you mentioned not interested because we have we've certainly gotten a little bit away from my initial point which was going to be this film le- film left me surprisingly cold, given the relevant nature of the topics. I I did not I I did not come away from it feeling particularly moved by it. So I, I don't know why. I, I have no idea why. Uh, it may be because I was struggling to even keep up with it um, for so long that, and I was looking for kind of the the end game of the film. Um, that I just kind of lost sight of a lot of the stuff. But, like, I don't know. People are uh, praising, I guess, Tom Cruise's performance in it. And it was good, but I don't feel like he was the best performance. I think there... Yeah, he's w- the one that got, like... I, it was shocking to me that he got all of the... Like, he's the one that got nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. He's the one that won a Golden Globe. I feel like maybe it's because he's he wasn't viewed as being able to pull this off and he did it was and it was also such a departure from his usual roles right where he's just it's funny because because chuck Klosterman, uh who's one of my my favorite writers is kind of obsessed with the works of tom cruise mm-hmm. and he talks about how like he lo- loves to talk about tom cruise's role in eyes wide shut and his magnolia film as like glimpses of what the real tom cruise is like or like tom cruise okay. at his essence or this is like is this entirely gleaned from his filmography? I know. I mean, it's it's a little bit, you know, it's what's the reverse. It's like not even navel gazing. It's gazing into someone else's navel. <laughs> but like Tom Cruise okay. is an interesting character because he's a Scientologist and not just right. any old Scientologist. He's like one of the archbishops of Scientology. Mm-hmm. He's got all these weird personal relationships with women. And a lot of that is like it feels like it's been the Scientologist like shop around women for him to build up. It's weird. It's all bizarre. And so when you see something that looks like it's not Tom Cruise, the actor, Mm -hmm. like you, I think it invites like, is this what Tom Cruise is really like? Okay. Um, Like, how does he know how to play? Um, Another one that I thought was kind of revealing is his turn in that, that what was that? The rock of ages where he plays this super obsessed weirdo, 
aging rock star uh-huh. and like are these gl- like how does and, and like when he plays the you know for comedic effect the megalomaniacal ceo uh behind the film tropic thunder like right there's got to be i mean on one hand it's like he's an actor that's what he does but when he pumps out a certain type of role over and over and over again and then when he does something different it's this and it's so genuine and real mm-hmm. like is he tapping in something i don't know authentic I mean, in his Maybe, maybe not. As much as any kind of uh, method actor, I think, uh, taps into that sort of stuff in their own lives. Uh, I I don't know. Everybody kind of has a use, universal sense of tragedy and I, I uh, want to go back sadness. to this. What do you mean by this movie left you cold, though? Be- I don't know. It just didn't connect with me in the way that I thought it should, given the subject matter and the, the excellent uh, production of it. I felt it was much more satisfying cerebrally than emotionally, but I okay. I I suspect it's because I have I feel like at, at the age I'm at and the entertainment I've consumed and the therapy I've been through, that I've confronted most of this stuff. Hmm. Okay. This was it was more intellectually satisfying to see it all together than emotional because like you know I've uh uh. <laughs> You know, me dealing with my mommy issues, like, uh, I remember when I was uh, watching the movie AI, Artificial Intelligence, uh-huh. and there's a particular point at the end where this boy desperately wants to be real so his mother will love him, and I just, like, I was, like, the only person <laughs> in the theater just completely losing yeah. my shit, like, not even not even dusty in the room. I just, I was full out bawling, like, sobbing, <laughs> like snot running out my John nose. John Because uh, I, like, I was completely, yes, I was <laughs> John Hamm crying. I was completely unprepared for like how real that emotion particularly was. Right. Yeah. And like I feel like um, I don't know. It's it's like a once in a lifetime thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you can have certain certain feelings, I guess, over and over again. It just depends on what headspace you're in. But uh, do you feel like you just had enough time to contextualize your relationship with your parents? That I think so. It's been. 15 years now so. do you think i don't and you feel free to edit this if it's uncomfortable but do you feel like you might be a bit in denial about the nature of oh yeah the abuse of your parents well <laughs> i mean i don't want to put like i, I can't say empirically your parents were abusive i'm just if i was i wouldn't be able to see it yes i guess that's true <laughs> so it's like so i'm biases. gonna say no but you're free to interpret that however you like hmm. uh yeah, it just, I don't know, it didn't quite denials... connect with me, except for, like, there were some really great performances in here. Yeah. And, and the and the film itself is, I, I think it's a powerful film for maybe not the exact same reasons that other people do. Okay, well, let's elaborate on that then. Uh, so I think, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character and Julianne Moore were probably the best, like, even better than Tom Cruise. I'm not sure what you saw in Philip Seymour. I mean, it's a good. It's so understated, pair. and he's kind of the only character with any outside perspective on tragedy and and regret. Well, right? and also he's maybe the most altruistic character because of it, it, yeah. At first, you know, because I'm I'm approaching this film like a puzzle. And I'm trying to figure out everyone's motivations when he found out that his father was Tom Cruise mm-hmm. and he started looking him up in sex mags and stuff. I thought it's because. Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> okay, you just said something that's going to confuse people. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman is not. His father is not Tom Cruise. I'm You're sorry. You're saying I'm, Tom yes. Cruise is the son of the guy who he is caretaking nursing. for. Yeah, and he goes and he gets gets this guy's number from porno mags. I thought it was going to be. I want to look this guy up and use this situation so I can get an in with this. Pickup right. artist because I struggle with women and he's kind of like my hero because he took to right, it with this right. like zeal. 
He did. Yeah, he did. But it was totally just to enable his father and this father and son moment. Like it was mm-hmm. completely selfless, selfless, selfless. And he felt yeah. like he was put on this planet to take care of people. And there was a little yeah. bit like I feel like there's mirrors in this movie that I'll probably appreciate more the more I watch. But I felt like the Philip Seymour Hoffman and the police officer played by Riley, John C. Riley. John C. Riley, yeah. They are kind of mere images because they're both caretakers yeah. and both kind of delusional in their way. Sure. Um, but it, Philip, uh, but I, I thought that he was fine. But Julian Moore, like I've said before that I don't like her. I think I said this in the um, – what do you call that? Uh, the um, uh, th- We did another one where she was a Coen Brothers. Don John. No. God damn you. <laughs> God damn you to hell. Uh, the you, Big Lebowski. Yes, I know what you're talking you. about. The Big Lebowski. And I've never liked her in any of her roles. And I don't, I, it's like huh. I don't like her face. I don't like the way she enunciates things. I don't like the – like – it just is lots of things, but she completely won me over in this role. Huh? What about it? Like, what was what was the deal? I I don't know, man. Like, she. So my interpretation of her character is she married this old guy for his money. Yep. And somehow, and I don't understand why, because he doesn't seem like he's a very lovable man. Genuinely right. fell in love with him, yeah. and has turned. Like I thought she was like using him for drugs and do and i she definitely was high as a kite but she doesn't seem like she was depriving the old man of anything uh-huh but she just feels like that she doesn't know what to do now that she's going to die and that is such a hard thing to sell and i was so dead set against believing it mm-hmm. but that thing where she had a breakdown in the pharmacy yeah and then later on when she had a breakdown to one of her therapists or lawyers or whoever, the army of people that she was yeah, using as like, this. I don't want the money. I, yeah. I with married the, like him, she's trying to didn't s- love him, solve herself of this. Like it totally. And then she tried to kill herself. It totally yeah. sold me 100% on the reality of that character, which is amazing. It's just as amazing as like, you know believing a man can fly in a superman movie like i did not okay. want like i did not want to believe in that scenario and i was trying to find out yeah. where she was phony at every turn and me too uh and, and you're right they actually i don't think do a good enough job explaining why she fell in love with this guy because i don't see it i don't think i think i don't think but Paul Thomas Anderson gives a shit he's just like right. i'm going to this entire character is going to rest on this character's performance this actor's yeah. performance and she nailed it I thought so. And it's the first time that I've actually been, you know, and again, like, it's one of those things where, like, I don't know why I don't like a, a particular performance because she's certainly genuinely well regarded as an actress. Yeah, I like her in a lot of stuff. And I know you've said that, and I'm just like, I just never seen. It's <laughs> kind of like, Gwyn, almost like a Gwyneth Paltrow, like, I just reflexive. Huh. There's another one that I just reflexively kind of don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I, I, you know, I tolerate her in, like, Iron Man. But Julianne Moore, like, I don't know. I now feel like I need to go watch her in a bunch of other things because I probably, I know maybe she was just more nuanced than none of the stuff I saw her in. I took her, I, I, I did anything but take her at face value. Yeah, I mean, she's ridiculous in, in Big Lebowski. Yeah. She's just a character. And I get that's a character. That's not really who she is. Certainly, yeah. But... Uh, and, and it's also a, a ridiculous one at that. It's not just like it's a yeah. character that she's playing. It's it's the most ridiculous of characters. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. The other the other pair, the other duo that I like here is actually Riley, uh, James C. James C. Riley, John C. John Riley, C. Riley yeah. and uh, William H. Macy. 
the ah. the, the men with three names, as I like yeah. to refer to them. Right. Uh, <laughs> those final few minutes are excellent between those two. Yeah. And I think I think the idea of I, I think this is a a thing that all authorities, specifically policemen, I guess, should aspire to is this idea that punishment is not necessarily always the answer and that forgiveness can be the answer. But isn't it interesting that, like, amongst the police community, he's a laughingstock? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's like not he's considered the considered a terrible. Have. And I guess, like, he does, he is portrayed as being fairly inept. But Right. He loses his gun at one point, oh, sliding yeah. down a stupid mud embankment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's not. He's not great at the, I, I, I guess, I don't need John, logistics of his job. I don't think John C. Rye is the guy you want to call when there's a bank robbery. Right, yeah. But he might be the guy you want to call when there's a suicidal person with a gun and he's Absolutely. in the house with his family and he might end up you know, either getting shot by cops or shooting himself. or like He's yeah. the guy you want for that. Right, and I think those, those final few minutes with them are just some of the best in the movie, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Because it's like, uh, you know, this John C. Or, I'm sorry, William H. Macy is such. Oh, man. He's he, sad. I mean, it's his story is real sad. He's put on earth to play these types of characters, right? He's a great character. Actor. Like, I mean, from a, Mystery Men. Among the likes of Paul Giamatti, he is excellent. But unlike, like, a guy like. Um, um, God, I'm just going to stop trying to think of these guys' names. Um, who's the other character actor we're always amazed with? He plays... I can remember the characters' names. Commissioner Gordon. Gary Oldman. Yeah. Gary Oldman. Unlike Gary Oldman, who can do anything and mm-hmm. be anything, William H. Macy seems to just, like, tap into this quiet desperation. Right. Of, it's almost Fargo-esque in some way. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, he always plays Jerry these, th- this, these pathetic, pathetic roles. Yeah. And I wonder what that does for a person's psyche. Like, in John C. Riley, it's like, he's I just want got the face. I want a guy who, as soon as you see him on the camera, you know he's a fucking loser. <laughs> right. Get John C. Riley on the phone. And the same thing with <laughs> William H. Macy, you know? Uh huh. I want somebody who looks like a real creep and couldn't possibly be a normal human being. Yeah. Uh, let's get Willem Dafoe. He's got a face <laughs> sure. for it. Sure. Maybe he's a demon. He might actually be a <laughs> right. legit demon. Uh, or a supervillain, one of the two. But yeah, this, so you went about the John C. Riley, like the, this. <laughs> another thing, like I wanted to hate this character and this path that he was on with the daughter of the TV star. Yeah, the coke addict. And how this was just a fucking train wreck and a terrible idea. Yeah, and it it still is. Nothing changed to me, but like I feel like both of those characters. That's kind of what they were supposed to do. Yeah, it subverted my expectations, certainly. I thought, oh, when is he going to find out about this coke habit? Mm-hmm. And how is he going to react to it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not at all what that story is about. No. That story is about understanding someone else and being open and honest. Or and, unconditional and love, something that, that none too, of these yeah. children had. Right, absolutely. So, I I don't know. It. A lot of this movie gets lost in what I thought this movie was going to be. And yep. I think that's why it didn't connect with me um, on that kind of base level. It's because I was too busy looking for the other things I thought this movie was doing. And I think that's a failing of the beginning of this film. Yeah. So maybe maybe I was a little too uh, gung-ho about the masterpiece thing. But I think it's still excellent in, no, I, in what it's actually trying to do. I do think it's a masterpiece. And I think that as I watch it more and more that this is going to be – it's going to be more and more self-evident. 
Like Probably so, yeah. Um, now that you can relax into it a little bit. And... There's very few movies when I see them, I think, oh my God, this is a fucking man. I mean, I like sure. Godfather is one that I can right away think. I remember the very first time I watched this, like, oh, oh, I totally get why this is considered the best American film of all time. Yeah. But it's weird because like contemporary stuff, like if you saw Magnolia at the theaters... Uh, you know, obviously didn't have the reputation of a masterpiece. And Paul Thomas Anderson has said, not only is this my best movie, but I think I can, I'll never be able to make a better one. I think he did actually make a better one. What's uh, that? I, I think he made a couple of better ones, at least ones that connected with me more. If you say Punch Drunk Love. I think Punch Drunk Love is better. Oh, fuck you, babe. <laughs> I, I love that movie. Although I saw that when I was fairly young. I saw it about the time it came out. I mean, so I, think I was like 18-ish. That's a great movie, but almost because it was taken on a dare of, I can make an Adam Sandler movie yep. that's thoughtful and emo- but still use the essential Adam Sandler traits. But But it has the same feel of what he's trying to do with Tom Cruise in this movie. Hmm. It just it worked better for me because I didn't expect it at all but, from from uh, Adam Sandler. But I had seen Tom Cruise pull off stuff that was very close to this before I saw Magnolia. Hmm. Well, the thing like is, Vanilla the thing, Sky guess, is a little more is a little more like that. I, that. Uh, I, I don't know all yeah. of his just different. Can I also confess that I thought that like halfway through the movie, I think I even said this to you. Um, I said, when does Tom Cruise get his face fucked up? Because I thought I had con- okay. conflated the the things I'd heard about Magnolia, or things mm-hmm. I heard about Vanilla Sky with Magnolia, and right. I thought that that was like, this was going to be like, oh, he's this good-looking guy, and he's this, he, he's, he, everything's bound up in his sexual attractiveness. Because that's the thing. This, this pickup artist shit, rule number one, be Tom Cruise. Uh, yeah, look like Tom Cruise. Everything else, be as know, charismatic. Respect the cock and all that stuff. But yeah, if you're yeah. Tom Cruise, you're going to. Um, I thought that was going to be this. He's going to be <laughs> laid low because he loses wow. his face. So you were really trying to figure out this movie, right? And <laughs> on then a I actually, level. yeah. But and then I realized at some point that that wasn't going to happen, and they were two separate films. I'm like, oh, oh, well, fuck, shit. So all right, um, well, okay. So Adam Sandler really, really surprised me in that movie, and well, I loved it. That's what I wanted to say is that I felt like it's not like Paul Thomas Anderson took the the Tom Cruise performance and then subverted it or or elevated it. He took a completely different performance from Tom Cruise that maybe people hadn't seen before. Yeah. Whereas Adam uh, like Sandler, Eyes Wide Shut, there's some some yeah. good stuff in there from Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, not not kind of the exact same thing, but yeah. Whereas, Impressive. whereas in in Punch Drunk Love, I feel like he essentially took the um, Adam Sandler character from Happy Gilmore and essentially all the movies. The fact where he just childish rages out, and he took that right. and he put it in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and like, see, I can make this work. It's almost like a dare. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, there's actually a, a better, I, I think, a, a better performance from Adam Sandler in some movie where he's a recluse and Don Cheadle's in it, and I can't remember the name of it. Hmm. Uh, which was super interesting. There's one he had with uh, Se- uh, is it Seth Rogen? He's the the, mm, the chubby I, dude. Yeah. Um. He where he plays a kind of a slightly washed up comic, and this guy is like hmm. one of his okay. ghostwriters that he was quite good in. But he was essentially playing Adam Sandler at the stage Adam Sandler was at his career. Yeah. Um. But yeah. But I, I think Paul Thomas Anderson's true masterpiece, in my opinion, is The Master. I absolutely love that film well there again that's like right in our wheelhouse right you want to make a movie about some crazy weirdo cult of personality yeah right Uh, i think the uh, so it's mostly made by its performances like if you don't have uh psh in there and joaquin phoenix doing their thing sure 
uh, and just absolutely killing it. And there's where Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, no one else yeah. could play that. Like, I think you could Fuck get a no. couple in the Joaquin Phoenix roles, but, like, mm-hmm. he is so that character. He's scary. He's charming. Likeable, yeah. Like, he, that's exactly the kind of guy you need to pull off a cult like that. You have to yeah. both be magnetic and attractive to people and also able to exert your will to yeah. a scary degree. Yeah, so I, I think that's really better when I've seen a... I guess part of Boogie Nights, I know a lot of people love it. I, I turned it off in the middle. I just wasn't in the right place to watch that at the yeah. moment. So I've seen Punch Drunk... And Cigarettes and Coffee, which is a you short he that? did. Oh, yeah. okay. I've seen, um, I've seen Punch Drunk Love, Magnolia now, Boogie Nights. I have not seen There Will Be Blood. It's definitely... Oh, and The Master, of course. And I haven't seen yeah. Inherit Vice, the, the newest I one. haven't either. I hear There Will Be Blood. You know why I didn't amazing. see Inherent Vice? Because mm-hmm. it reminded me of American Hustle, and I did not like American Hustle. Huh. Okay. Like it's like this weird seventies period piece and I know it's not from the same guy and it's probably not but I like I felt like I was like that somehow American Hustle soured me on the concept of inherent vice. It's a two word film. <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's dumb, it's completely irrational, but like every sure. single time I had it queued up to watch, I'm like, I no, I can't I can't take it. Yeah. Uh but I don't know. I feel like of the ones I've seen, again I haven't seen There Will Be Blood. Um, which I know that gets thrown around as a masterpiece, and it's got one of the, the greatest yeah. living actors uh, of our time in it as well. But Boogie Nights was good. Mm-hmm. Very weird, intimate movie. Punch Drunk Love mm-hmm. was good. The Master was amazing. I think Magnolia might be... I think I might agree with him. I think that's his best film so far. Wow, okay. Just because it is so complex, and it's a story that... It's also very tightly plotted. Like, this takes place, correct me if I'm wrong, over to sing, a single day. Yeah, that's... I didn't realize that watching it, actually. I didn't either, but when when I, I read that in a, a review, or maybe it was something that he was explaining in the documentary, uh, it kind of like, oh, yeah, I, I, I just kind of did the math. I'm like, I think that's entirely true. Yeah. Um, so that was amazing, the fact that he connected all of these um, dispersed characters. It didn't seem like they had anything to do, and they slowly, like a couple times I said, oh, you can feel it, the movie's converging. Uh-huh. Uh, but it didn't feel forced. There was nothing like, oh, I can definitely hear the click-clack of a, of a typewriter in this scene. Sure. Uh, that's just like, how do you come up with this movie? Like, I, some... uh, Well, it's it has apparently been done. I mean, in the reviews I was reading. Same with Donnie Darko. This, like, like, how did you come up with something like this? Sure, yeah. Uh, I, I hear that it's kind of in following in the footsteps of some guy named Altman, who I I don't know that I've seen any of his stuff. Um, but, but it has very, like, a, a sort of coincidental connections Mm -hmm. kind of vibe to it. And so I guess that's what he was kind of playing on there. Hmm. Um, but I also feel like this movie has done a disservice in my personal history by having seen these types of movies over and over again, right? Like, the crash, like, for me, it's defined by crash, because that's one of the first that I saw. Yeah. Like this, where... Oh, it's all these different stories, but then they come together tragically in the end. Did you think Crash was good? I thought Crash was pretty good, yeah. I thought Crash was okay. Like, I I remember at the time thinking, why... I mean, it was like, did it win the Oscar that year? I think so. I remember thinking, being borderline offended, that, and I don't know what the competition was, but that's about the time I started paying attention to the Oscars. I think what got me into the Oscars was, like, Titanic. (laughs) And, And listen to why. Because, you know, I was a witness at the time, and, like, most of the 
Oscar-nominated movies are rated R, right? Sure. Titanic was the first one that was like I could see in a movie theater and recognize that it was, you know, great-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of fucking hate that movie now, but it, and it won all the Oscars, <laughs> so I started paying attention to it from from that point forward. And I remember at the time being kind of borderline pissed that Crash got the nomination over whatever, or it got the win over whatever. Hmm. Um, where was I going with this? Where were we? Going I don't know. With this? I, I mean, they're they're like I said. I think this movie. Uh, would have been better to me had I not seen a lot of movies like it. Oh, this is where I'm going with this. Paul Thomas Anderson is crazy young. He was is not it? even 30 years old when this movie... Like, he was probably 28 when this movie started production. Huh. And I'm trying to think, like... It's one thing if you're, like, a 50-year-old dude that's had kids and have had, you know, and, and, and had the perspective, like, you talk about wise behind your years. But right. y- you write this movie in your mid-twenties and film it in your late-twenties, how the hell do you know enough to make all these emotional beats work? That's incredible to me. Yeah. No, that, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, it makes me wonder what kind of childhood he had. Well, sure. And that's the one <laughs> I, thing... I, I went to look him up and see if there was any personal life stuff on Wikipedia. There isn't. Yeah. It's all about just who he's dated and who his kids and wife are. Yeah. And I was thinking that we might get some insights, but that's the whole reason I sat down when I found out, like, wait, uh, it's like, wait, he's 45 now? Let me do him. Oh, uh-huh. shit, he was less than... So I, I, I looked up this documentary that I heard was on the Blu-ray and DVD, and you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's legal or not, but you can. Yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, yeah, I thought that there might be some more of that, like, you know, personal stories, but no, it's just a purely mechanical, here's how I made this film. Huh. Nothing about revealing He might just want to keep that all private. I mean, yeah, but on the other hand, like, I would like to know where that comes from, because maybe this guy is, yeah. like, it does seem like he is kind of a genius. Um, and also not really a maniacal one. Like, you know, he was expressing frustration with working with the kid actors, but he never seemed, like, I've seen David O. Russell, like, famously going off and fucking Lily Tomlin and with Dustin Hoffman, like, crying in the corner and just screaming and berating these people. Okay. They get these performances, and you've all heard the stories of, like, uh, Stanley Kubrick and, like, the crazy shit he'd get up to. This guy doesn't seem like he's a tortured genius. He just seems like he's just a genius who's fairly congenial. A little bit weird. Okay. But not, that's... like, off-puttingly so. Sure. Just focused and driven, and um, I, I, that's that's amazing to me. And that he makes, but he made, so that means he made Boogie Nights and like, his he probably wrote it in his early twenties and and filmed it in his mid twenties. Like how the fuck, how the fuck do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen that one. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, there is a lot of stuff in here to really like. I, we haven't. I don't feel like we've talked much about the actual plot of this movie. Like there, there's some stuff in there, like the game show, right? Um, where they have kind of the kids pitted against the parents, and I think that's thematic sure. for this entire movie but it's, the game it's representative show, of of reality and life yeah but, but it's hyper reality because that game show would not exist in real no, life the game show itself i don't think even makes any sense no actually. it doesn't it yeah. really doesn't it's like some weird i mean i can't even describe it it's like you're having seven you're like nine-year-olds recite opera in a, the original language right and singing it yeah and, and this all felt very you know out of out of place for me like mm-hmm. uh, out of out of place and out of the experience of these children so that didn't help it but i think the the metaphor there of kids versus their parents works mm-hmm. really well sure uh and I, I don't think it was actually their parents but it was adults no um, but you're, you're right that is it would be too on the nose if it was their parents yeah 
And there's also themes with like the Tom Cruise's uh, pickup artist thing, uh-huh. like Seduce just and destroy. Sedu- it's just how. I mean, I don't think that the pickup artist scene was as big, but it's something that clearly Paul Thomas Anderson had had some experience with, or else he wouldn't have put it in his movie. Yeah, like, it's almost like it before existed. that blew up, he was he he knew about it and and and, and understood the culture enough to kind of ape it and parody it uh-huh. um, fairly effectively. But it's man, it's yeah, it reminded me a lot of uh, I can't think of his name, but Shooter McGavin's uh, thing from Re- Requiem for a Dream, mm. like just the the weird energy and like I don't, I don't know. It, it was a good performance. Though. It's just like and it's so that that philosophy D- disgusting character. It's so philosophy that the philosophy of essentially it's a nihil, it's it's personal nihilism. Uh, sure, yeah. Right? I, I... Like, if you I ever suppose... stop fucking long enough to realize how empty the existence is, and this is not speaking, mm-hmm. like, I'm not jealous. Like, I've I've had my days of crushing pussy, okay? <laughs> I didn't have <laughs> to use any crazy... I didn't have to dehumanize anyone or neg them or I'm, I'm do de- kino, kino kinetics or anything like that. Like, I'm. this is not... Uh, I'm not an average frustrated chump, if I want to use the terminology. I just think this is a profoundly broken way to... To yeah. to look at the world and to interact with people and to get it any is. kind of meaningful relationship. Oh, of course, yeah, and that's obviously not the point of his program. No, it's, but that's as the you thing said, is to... like there are there are people who are essentially this character and they do attract a following. And, right. Yeah. You know, it's like it's weird because they they kind of hit on a couple things that work like uh you know personal confidence and like sure whatever level of optimum physical fitness because that builds confidence and dress nicer and then they take it and they add a whole bunch of the essentially misogyny yeah and like they it's they secede exceed they secede despite themselves yeah and, and they they create a, a warlike scenario between the sexes mm-hmm. here and it's, yeah. it's just yeah all of it is gross yeah the performance is excellent by tom cruise uh in that it's extremely disturbing and slimy yeah uh and i hate every second of it i actually like it it made me physically uncomfortable to watch this part of the thing sure because it's so it's just gross yeah and like i I thought was later on the movie where he tries to take the stage again after he's completely crapped out with the journalist and how you can see the cracks in that facade like you know Mm -hmm. um I also like there's this quote in this movie where Philip Seymour Hoffman is trying to get through to Frank's handlers, and he calls the one eight nine hundred number to you know to get enlist in, 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 in his program, and he says something like, "Do you know the scenes in the movie where someone's trying to do this crazy thing and it seems crazy, and you're like, this could never happen. It's this is something that could only happen in the movies." He's like, "Well, this is." This is that scene. They have these scenes in the movies because they really happen. They must, right? Right. And I, that struck me as so meta, but right on. Yeah, like, someone somewhere has had such a bizarre experience. Yeah, like even like science fiction. Yeah, no one's piloted X-Wings and destroyed Death Stars, but the basic emotional beats of people being there for each other, like that stuff really does happen. They're just right. They're just heightened. But I thought that was a... A really gaudy thing to try to pull off in this movie that's already kind of so self-consciously artificial and constructed and operatic to essentially call attention to that fact. Mm-hmm. But it totally worked. It, like, made me smile. Yeah. I, I have a question for you about the end of this movie. Yeah. Uh, so much of it is full of just 
despair and abuse and sadness. Uh, in the end, do you think anything has changed? Do you think that anyone in this movie is is at the end of it content or can be in some way healed and happy? I think the daughter... The daughter of the network guy, which is why I struggle to Julian say his, Moore? his or no no the no the cocaine addicted one. There, there you go. Okay, and I'm I'm glad you appreciate because I could be misremember. I could be well. One of them's a producer I, and one of them's a host of a game show. Yeah so yeah yeah yeah. And also one of them's a wife confusing. and one's a daughter, and I would use those interchangeably because I'm a fucking idiot. But <laughs> okay. but yeah, the the cocaine addict, mm-hmm. uh, the one that falls in love with John C. Riley, or I wouldn't even say in love, like clings to him like a life preserver. Okay, she might have a good shot because I think her mom is now in a position where she understands what's going on and she can give her the unconditional love and support she needs. And, and coincidentally, John uh-huh. C. Riley's there. So where he's the, like maybe the ideal guy to help her recover. Now, the one thing that like long-term like, John C. Riley's got to stop being some of the, the goofy shit. Like he's the guy who is on Christian mingle and says, I want a person with, what did he say? I want a loving, oh. supporting person with like low standards or with not, not right. undemanding. I want someone that, like, yes. and I guess that's kind of him too, but I don't, I feel like that once this girl gets healthy, he is going to be not enough for her as, hmm. as anything. Like, he, Could like, be. Yeah. what is his real personality? Like, it, to me, he feels like one of those, he's the opposite end of the um, pickup artist. Okay. Like he's got this thing where as if I keep giving of myself and I keep being this caretaker and I'm the knight in shining armor mm-hmm. that this will make the women like me. Right. And the pickup artists are like if I treat them like garbage and I treat them like I don't need it, this is what will make the women like me. And it seems like the key to life in my opinion is to find out what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And find out what makes you feel fulfilled and to be passionate about that thing and then you will it's a long-term strategy. Attract the type of people sure. that are also kind of gravitate towards that. Like the, yeah. essentially, be a be genuine, happy, be healthy, a genuine, three-dimensional, strong, right. confident human being is the best sure. way. Works for, every time for long-term, long-term relational and life happiness. It's just that easy. <laughs> no, it's that's the thing. It's hard, and that's why yeah. it's like always frustrating yeah. to have like the Christian mingle and the pickup artist trying to peddle essentially snake oil, right? Because it's just like you know, hey, there's not a pill to make you not fat. Uh-huh. And, you know, although ironically, there is a syringe that will make you muscle, more muscly. <laughs> sure. There are some shortcuts in life that work. But, like, all of those things are unsustainable, much yeah. like the attitude that a Tom Cruise would take or that a John C. Riley would take and even in this film. And even steroids won't build – you still have to put the time in the gym. Right. Yeah, it just and, enables you to do and it And diet pills aren't going to keep you slim. Or, or if they do, they might kill you. Like, it's, yeah. So at some point, there's John, a trade-off. Whatever is broken in John C. Riley, because that's the mm-hmm. other thing is like Philip Seymour Hoffman feels like he's a genuine caretaker, yep. and like he that's yep. what he's passionate about doing. So he's actually you're good, you're good, Phil. Yeah, John C. Riley feels like he's a desperate person trying to make a system work for him, just like the the you know pickup artists, and that's why like maybe they can heal each other. Like yeah. every once in a while, you'll have two broken people that are broken complementary. And they can help each other kind of pull themselves up by the bootstraps. I don't know if this is this situation, but I feel good about the woman more than I do about John. Yeah, and, uh, and so I think there's an interesting uh, reflection of, of John C. Riley and uh, PSH in this um, where 
they are both trying to help people and they do seem caring, mm-hmm. but like one of them feels healthier. To me, PSH feels a lot healthier. Oh, sure. Than a John C. Riley. Because he's um, not, there's nothing. But, but he's still, he's extremely lonely. He di- He can't find anyone to really connect with. And I don't know if it's because of his job or if it's something else, but he just, like, he seems unfulfilled as well. Are you talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman? Yeah. What? Okay, so. You might be right. At some point, he's... he's because I, I guarantee I missed some things in the movie because I was trying to puzzle out. Because yeah. I, I felt like there was like a couple of minutes in the movie where I spaced out on because I was trying yeah. to unravel the Rubik's Cube that I'd just gotten the scene before. And I might have missed... What were the indications that he was not fulfilled? I, I felt like it was like... Part, partially the porno mags. I'm not saying like people who look at porn are unfulfilled But didn't he get those porno lives. mags? Like, I thought so too, but he got those just to get the guy's advertising phone number, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. Because I thought so too. That's the bit I felt eh, like that. Okay, halfway That's through fair. the movie, they judo threw me, and like I realized, oh, all these things I thought were weird and creepy were just him trying, however, to get in contact with this guy. Right. Okay. I, I think you're right about that. Yeah. Never okay. mind. I retract that statement. All right. Because uh, yeah, I guarantee I missed a couple things, and there's a lot of things about about the worm and Dixon. Okay, you can't put a fucking you can't put a kid in the middle of the street rapping for four and a half minutes. Unless you're going to hit him with a car. You can't expect me to pay attention <laughs> the, the when there's a yeah, kid we both like standing this, in the street. And the way is framed in the classic, yeah. you're going to get hit by a car out of nowhere. Right. Uh, did you know that that whole, there was a whole sequence with the worm who is his dad and that the black woman that had the dead man in her closet was their mother? Well, the mother of the worm, Whoa. and the worm was the father of Dixon. And there was this whole other classic family tragedy that... Paul Thomas Anderson, like, I got a three-and-a-half-hour movie, and this shit isn't working. He just essentially gutted everything except for the kid rapping, this slightly menacing scene where the... the got to count the black family, huh? Well... You got to do it, Paul Thomas Anderson. Is that how you do them? You know... Come I'm, on. I'm, I'm not going to put... <laughs> but, yeah, that's that's uh, that's, that's certainly an indictment of Hollywood. But, yeah, the only thing that's left is the kid rapping, the slightly menacing shot of, of John C. Riley losing his gun, and that that's the yeah. worm, I think, that's shooting at him. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, the, the black lady confesses that she murdered her husband because she was beating her, uh, he was beating their kids and grandkids, mm. and I couldn't let him do that. With the implication of that he's already done it so much that it's a kind of fucked up the worm. Because yeah. there's scenes, I, I so I, I found all this out in the documentary, and then I started doing research. And you can get the script where it's got all those scenes cut out, and you can see huh. like, and also there's a scene where, um, there's a there's a long conversation between Stanley and the Worm, where Stanley's talking about, or the Worm's talking about how his dad beats him, and he sends him out to sell candy bars, which might be a euphemism for drugs. And if he doesn't come <laughs> back with enough enough money, he gets beat. And right. Stanley's got says, "I've got loads of money. I'll just give it to you." Huh. And then there's a. I just, it's weird because I'm just reading the script. There's a scene where later on something happens to that plan, and Stanley's either not going to give him the money, or the worm realizes the money's not the problem, so he wants Stanley to keep it because he's realized that that would fuck up Stanley's relationship with his father. Sure. And that like the worm initially thought that Stanley's like, yeah, your dad pays attention to you and he's taking these game shows and it's great. And he doesn't aware of all the shit with Stanley and his dad. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't want the money. And then Dixon uh, pulls a gun on Stanley and threatens him because he wants the money because he's under the impression that the worm's going to beat him if he doesn't get the money. And like, there's a catharsis scene, but all of that. And that just all gets, that's wow. all cut out. Okay. 
Uh, I guess that's supposed to happen in the library that the that Stanley runs off to. Yeah. And when and, during the storm and like yeah. the worm can't like when during the frog storm he can't comprehend what's going on where Stanley the one line that's saved from that scene is where he says this happens this really happens uh-huh. this is a thing that happens sure it is it, it I don't know in those quantities what's that's what I sta- don't know where there's a concentration of frogs big enough to actually cause this to happen they the, the blanked the entire San Fernando Valley with frogs right and not have any fish in the mix I mean and I guess I so. Maybe people this would doesn't think happen. That I Let's would be honest, be, this doesn't happen. Maybe, yeah, you're right. I mean, it does happen in this, but not to the scale and whatever. But it didn't mm-hmm. bother me the way it does in Fargo because no. this did not really advance the plot. This was just a bizarre thing. Now, what this, is well, well, this is reflective of of the beginning, right? Like coincidences and 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 saying like. Nobody really understands everything. Like sure. this is a crazy thing that happened, and nobody gets it. And 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 relating it to like all their relationships, you don't really understand these relationships in the moment. And like, it's just it, yeah, it's it all is of a piece. What did you think about the references to X's eight two? They're just lousy in this movie. They're everywhere. And when I say lousy, I mean in the classical. Like there's just shit ton, tons of them. Yeah, uh, it, it's fine. It's decent foreshadowing. I, I was confused by it, and I was noticing it, and I was like, "Oh, is this some numerology thing?" What's yeah, going I wonder, like, because I, like, I, 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 by the time I got to the Exodus eight two and the, because uh, I, I saw the eight twos everywhere. Like, there's like cables twisted up on a wall. Yeah. And, there's, and then when I saw Exodus eight two, it's like, oh. And then when the frogs came, I'm like, I bet my life that that's the scripture, yep. uh, you know, about God threatening Egypt with the plague of frogs, and it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, did PTA? think that he had to put it in there to make the frog thing pull off because you could you don't have to have i mean that doesn't add anything to the film no certainly not and there's already enough intellectual masturbation to go around that throwing in a script a blatant scriptural reference foreshadowing it doesn't feel like it's more rewarding but then on on the other hand you know uh alex had a the guy commissioned this the commissioned this podcast on his behalf had a grand old time Going through with his family, looking for these references. So yeah, maybe no, I'm the asshole. It's just a, a little extra piece yeah. to it. I, I don't have uh, an opinion on it one way or another. And I know like, it works. I, I'm, so, I'm such a hypocrite because I can remember the conversation we had in a podcast with Mad Men where I complained about people complaining about some of the obvious right. and on the nose references. I'm like, oh, I'm going to complain about an additional layer of art in my art. Like, uh-huh. oh, this is uh, so. I and I'm doing it. Maybe this is just <laughs> what all like. If you do enough criticism enough, you... It, it's all about mood. It's all... It, honestly, it's about your own perspective and mood going into these things. And I yeah. think, you know, and that's what makes it art. And that's what makes it effective for people. Uh, the, the other the other pair, before we we get well, also too before, far away from I, this, I also want to say, it's like, I think I was also like, just a fatigue. It's like the 30th time you, go, you come across a, cross, a Christ reference or Christ, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, imagery, you kind of yeah. roll your eyes. But the first time, it's kind of cool. Right, and that's what I mean with, like, Crash, right? I've seen these kind of yes. stories play out. I've seen this kind of foreshadowing done so many other places that, yeah, it does kind of fall but a little I, flat. I do feel like the, the average critic tends to forget the fact that it's the first time for somebody. Right. And, like, right. you know, unless you're just going to say, well, no more Christ imagery from here on out, that's that's a stupid policy. Sure. And maybe I should just, you know, I should try to... Because I feel like that Roger Ebert always maintained that's one of the things i love about him there's so many things i loved about him but he always seemed like he maintained that genuine love 
yes, he also prioritized novel experiences, but he was never the one to be like, oh, God, this fucking tired old bullshit cliche. Unless it was used – I mean, you know, there's still hacky – tropey cliches that you can complain about but he was never sure. one to like demerit a work of artistic vision just because it used the nuts and bolts from other things that came before it mm-hmm. uh i want to go back real quick to the people who i think might might be happy at the end of this or have a shot at it at oh least. yeah sure uh i think william h macy's character D- donnie is that his name D- quiz kid donnie yeah. something mm-hmm. uh I think he's got a genuine shot. He has he has some pretty profound insights, I think, at the end um, into his own personal dilemma. And I think he might have a shot at coming out of this, coming through the other side of this better than he was before. He did have a, if he it did sticks, have a moment of clarity. Right. And, and that's, that's always the question with moments of clarity. Sure. Do they? How long do they stick with you? And do they fundamentally change you in any kind of way? Yeah. Most of the time, the answer is no. Yeah. You just fall back into your same old patterns. Yeah, and you have to have multiple moments of clarity before right. you... Uh... You almost need a continuous stream of moments of clarity to get you through your whole life to, yeah. for them to have any effect. Yeah. Um, but I, I like to think that he maybe took to heart some of the lessons he learned. I thought maybe Stanley might, too. If uh, yes. he broke through to his father if. and and maybe if this quiz show, his flame out, makes it like, well, you know... He certainly nipped it in the bud more than anyone else, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you pl- need to be nicer to me when I'm ten years old. As and and to I think this, like, if 40. that's if that's something that kids could just realize, like, you know, it's it's a lot easier to deal with um, abuse and injustice when it's not uh, you're not in denial about it. Sure, yeah. Like, if you're dealing with it and this is this is the way it is, that's self defeating. Where if you like know, like, you know, this is not the way life is supposed to be. Life is supposed to be something better, which is. Something they like yeah. to fucking do Supposed every five minutes on The Walking Dead. In quotes. Um, <laughs> right. That, 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 that somehow, like, you can, that, that kindles hope and keeps it alive. And you, maybe you don't internalize it. Sure. So, yeah, yeah maybe he's wise behind his ears, but I think maybe he's equipped to be a happier person. Uh, yeah, hopefully. What about Tom? What do you think about Tom Cruise? Oh, man. He's wealthy. And Julianne Moore too, like she's he still laying in that like bed Tom after Cruise. suicide, <laughs> right? He does. Now he's got a reputation to overcome. Sure, for to be certain. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's certainly taking a more honest look at his life. No doubt about that. He was in complete denial before. Uh, I don't. I don't know where his path lies, honestly. How much of what he was doing was he doing because he thought that's what his dad wanted him, you know, that's what would make his dad proud? Because it seemed like his dad was something of a pussy hound. Yeah, yeah. And didn't have a lot of those relationships, and probably because his father was like, I mean, that's the thing, like all these these, these generational cycles that people get caught up in. Um, sure. I don't know, if his dad, like, absolved him of this, maybe he could let that go. Yeah, I just don't think he got a chance to, right? Mm. Like on on his deathbed there, it didn't it didn't seem like he said anything. Tom Cruise was just kind of dealing with it on his own there. Well, and that's the other thing, it's like his also backstory where his father abandoned his mother when she was dying and that, that right. he had to take care of her as a 14-year-old and I mean, it seems like maybe uh, a lot of his life philosophy is to put him in a situation where he will never be in that situation that I like, I might yeah. be as selfish as my old man. I don't want to get a woman for longer than a night. I certainly don't want to have a child Yeah, because you know, that's another way to make 
uh, like a cycle of abuse end is to just not continue to line. Like I'm going to be the last victim because I'm not going to have any progeny and I'm not going to have any relationships. And yeah, you know, there you go for sure. Uh, but Julianne Moore, I think also has a shot at it. You know, she, it took her trying to kill herself, um, in order to, to figure anything out. But I don't know. I'm not actually sure where they leave her. Um, other than in a hospital bed, having been saved by uh, the young, young, uh, young Griff mm-hmm. there. Um, the young Griff? What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's a Game of Thrones Uh-oh. thing. Uh, <laughs> I I don't know. I'm not sure about her. Julianne Moore, you mean? Yeah, she's a tough nut to crack in this one. Like, I loved her performance. I just don't know where she ends up after the suicide attempt and yeah, having right. her guts pumped. Because there, right. there is no final, like monologue from her or anything no. it's just they show her in a hospital bed um, i mean and that's just something like how do you absolve someone of guilt that i mean uh, that's a weird flip side of that like she didn't come clean to her husband right and she's racked with guilt and she'll never be able to come clean with it um yeah i, I, don't, I don't know you're right I, that she's the one that's kind of most ambiguous yeah there's an easy solution to her problem if she doesn't if she wants to get the will re- rewritten and she can't. Just give What's the money that? to charity. That's what I thought. Just too. get the money and give it away. Like, yeah, like you you don't see a way out of this, lady. If you don't want it to go to Tom Cruise. Although right. the other thing is, like, that's weird because I feel like if she wanted to do if she wanted to honor her husband's memory, maybe she would give the money to Tom Cruise. Because I feel like that's what the that's what the guy himself would want to do at that point. He is let go of all of his anger, and yeah, I guess I don't know how much she knows about his feelings at the end. Like, does she understand him in that sort of way? And does she like I? Yeah, I felt like their relationship was the most nebulous of the entire. It really movie. was yeah. because all this stuff went down, and where he's like, you know, at he's barely alive. Yeah. Did you know that that was the last um, performance for that particular actor? No. Um, did he die, or did he just yeah. stop acting? Whoa. Uh, he he died like later uh, in 1990, the same movie it was released, and um, he was shoot, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was prominent in the uh, he was prominent in the documentary because he talked about how when he got this script offer, Jason Robards, that's his name. Uh, he got this offer that he had just spent like some time in a coma, a medically induced coma, and was on death's door and spent a lot of time in the hospital. Wow! And had had like you know, uh, you know, had known what it's like to kind of face death and and realize that you have to make connections with people, and that he leaned on a lot of that experience, and then essentially died as soon as like that this this role was over. I thought that was kind of interesting yeah and you know what now that i think of it another way i'm like, actually giving way more credit to the actors the the performances of the people i know or or i'm familiar with mm-hmm. he does another outstanding performance yeah. like i his his dying old man is you know it's great mm-hmm. it's real great and it's like that's the thing like well he's just lying there dying but you that's know, tough but, sure that's not an easy thing to portray sure. especially with the nuance with like him slipping in and out of mm-hmm sort of coherence and, and all those sorts of things. It's it's powerful. Uh it's hard to find a performance like and there's so there's like sneaky like uh Alfred Molina comes in there for like a photo bomb. <laughs> like That's right. there's yeah. tons of famous act like it's 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 deep 
yeah. rolling deep in this posse. There's so many famous people. Uh, and of course, uh, they, Patton they, Oswalt's in it. I forgot yes, about him. Yes, he fucking is. And that's yep. the thing. Like a lot of these people were in there before. Maybe they blew up. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman is not too far removed from his Twister days. <laughs> oh Jesus! You know I what I mean? He was in that. Like yeah, right. Like some of these guys weren't the 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 recognized or the genius they were at the at the point. Uh, you know, at this point in the movie, like Philip Seymour Hoffman at this point was in Boogie Nights. Uh. I'm trying to think like what. You know, he was in Twister, Boogie Nights, and had he done Mr. Talented Mr. Ripley yet? He was in I, The Big Lebowski. I know. So I guess he was kind of working there, but like a lot of these people are up and coming. Even Julianne Moore, probably. Uh-huh. I'd have to look at her um, career, but it's amazing how much talent he got together in this movie. Yeah. Uh, what else we want to talk about? Do we... Um, because I, so many things that I wrote down that I thought it would be interesting to talk about after I saw the whole movie, I don't, I don't know that it's interesting to talk about. Like I, you know, the nature of quiz shows and this pickup artist stuff, and uh, there's one thing that I noticed several times in the movie that shots intentionally blurred out when people pass things to each other. Hmm. And that's what I'm going to be interested in rewatch is like if there was there like something significant or was he intentionally blurring it out so that we would not understand what happened and focus on the characters. But I noticed that the, the shots lost focus a couple of times when it seemed like people were passing things to each other. Um, and I don't know why. Uh, it might be tied into what uh, Alex says here about the difficulty and necessity of forging meaningful connections with people. Like maybe that is a visual way of communicating like that. Like people's hands are about to touch. Like that's yeah. A physical... Anytime they get close, things get blurry. Uh, you know, hard, it's more like they're passing like a key or a cigarette or a pill or something like that that got blurred out. That was, right. But I guess that that could be. Although this seems like people touched each other a lot. Maybe they didn't. That's another thing I want to watch on a rewatch. Like physical proximity to people. Yeah. I can't exactly recall. Like, did Phil, did did uh, John C. Riley and the coke addict ever hold hands on their dates? Or did they ever hug? They kissed once. Like, she came back and kissed him right. after going to the bathroom. Yeah, to, yeah. to coke up. Yeah, but that was where uh, she was severing, trying to sever the connection, not forge a new one. Right. As essentially an apology for doing what I'm about to do to you. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't know. Uh, like I said, I've seen it once. But. Shall we transition into some Alex's thoughts? Some of this might sure. be um, stuff we've already talked about. Like he uh, said, how does this film compare to other Paul Thomas Anderson's? I felt like we covered that. Yep. Uh, the relationship between children and adults in general and children and parents in particular is prominent. Children are often unequipped to deal with their faults, mistakes, and abuse of the adults around them. Okay. Unless they're Stanley and then they're immensely equipped. And, uh, <laughs> surprisingly so. They're equipped with all the skills Paul Thomas Anderson can imbue them with. <laughs> right. Um, biblical themes references people consciously or unconsciously paying for others sins forgiveness judgment guilt and exploitation sure uh the certainly i see why he goes for the biblical stuff here even though well yeah. i don't think these are things the, the bible doesn't have a monopoly on forgiveness judgment guilt or exploitation certainly uh but it must be tied up in there there are obviously biblical references the only here thing i don't think we talked enough about is forgiveness and is there right. any forgiveness in this film uh, I think maybe from Tom Cruise on his father's deathbed. I think maybe. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, there's certainly uh, people looking for forgiveness. Uh, the, the other thing, yeah. the, the other obvious one that I, I should have mentioned is uh, William H. Macy. When 
when he's forgiven uh, for his yes. crime and just kind of let go. Yeah. You know, he's he's remorseful and... He's already had all of his teeth broken out at this right. point. Which is pretty awesome considering that, how it, the entire movie he's wanted orthodonty. Yeah. yeah, and that's the funny, like, uh, him working at that furniture store, I guess, and, like, him trying to talk to his... Like, in the midst of him being fired, he's like, you can't fire me because I need braces. Right. And the guy's like, well, how are you going to fuck pay for braces yeah. and also you don't, you don't need, need braces, braces no. like, but he thought that was the thing like that's the magic feather he needed to get to with win Brad the bartender, the bartender. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah I, I don't know I guess yeah you're right that is forgiveness and also John C. Riley did he say something about what the, to Marcy or whatever her name was the coke addict like no matter what you've done like I can get past it I can forgive it like he, I think so yeah which is that's always like oh boy uh, really what she's what if she boiled her baby alive in a pot right maybe you gonna forgive that maybe wait what if she murdered hear. her last three husbands like say you, I I will listen and I will try to understand uh, <laughs> that's maybe a little bit more yeah, there you go reasonable but then again he's not I mean he's not a healthy person no he's not uh. He says the performance of the film continued to amaze me, and he was specifically cited Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Macy. Shockingly left out Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore, old guy on the bed. Uh, I don't know. The, I think top to bottom, they're pretty much all I thought the quiz great. show host, I know he's a famous actor. Um, uh, Hall? Philip, Philip something Hall? Philip Baker Hall. Baker Hall, yeah. Uh, he's not bad. I just know him from Scrubs, but it's he's it's such an understated understated performance. I don't know what to make of it. You know, like I it's, yeah, it is. It doesn't draw. It's exactly what you needed, mm-hmm. and it worked well because of the kind of shocking twist at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. That's I mean, it's not a bad performance, so maybe I should just move on. Uh, the use of music. Uh, he said most obvious with the Amy Mann songs, but also the relentlessness of the score and building tension throughout the middle of the film. I actually mentioned that in that like in my notes that this was like really building a head of steam. Uh, yeah, at a point in the film where I was kind of not sure where my footing was. And but I actually thought that Amy Mann song was going to be the end of the movie. I did too, and then I realized there's still like an hour to go. Right, and and we, I think you likened it to the color purple, where you weren't sure if these people were actually, yeah, like psychically connected, that, or that if scene this where is the da- the preacher's license. daughter hears them singing, and then like from an improbable distance, and then leads yeah. like a chorus line into the church. Like, is that did that really happen, or is yeah. that an emotional truth? That the movie's communicating to me, and I'm not intention. And I think, I think it's the latter, obviously. Yeah, this, as, as soon as ever, literally everyone in a movie started singing it, I'm like, okay, this is this yeah. is an emotional through line to connect all these characters explicitly. To this point, it's only been an implicit connection, and it does work really well. It does. I, I thought that song was perfect, and you know that the, it's not going to stop. Like it's almost right? daring like, you to laugh at it or not take it seriously. Hmm. You know, and it's like, nope, fuck you. This is a genuine emotional moment, and I've earned this. I've earned this through my genius and talent. Right. Um, the difficulty and necessity forging me, we talked about that with the blurred shot. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I got to admit, that is, that's hard. Um, sure. I was just talking. Uh, Especially with our backgrounds, I think. Yeah, because there's, a, you know, when a person is supposed to be the source of unconditional love, yeah. severs all contact, that kind of, um, I think, gives you a permanent trust issue. Certainly. Uh, to to yeah. put it mildly. Uh, I would say if I have any residual feelings, that's probably it. Yeah. Like, does this person really like me and love me, or yeah. are they just pretending it? Or... And, a, you know, a certain a, a fair dose of insecurity as well. Sure, sure. Um, 
I felt like I wanted to say something else. That just like I find it hard for me personally to just talk to people. Um, and I remember one at one point when I was getting out of the cult and I was going through therapy, one of the challenges was to do that and how uncomfortable that was. But after you did it for a couple of months, like it almost became a superpower. Just like talk to strangers? Yeah. Hmm. And okay. not like annoyingly, like because I, I have some social graces. So if I sat down next to somebody and they clearly weren't comfortable or interested in a conversation, mm-hmm. like I would pick up on that and be like, all right, well, then just You wouldn't on. like William H. Macy, the guy at the bar? No. And just go up and start talking no, at him? No, <laughs> that's exactly, yeah, that's like the, the other end of the extreme. But like right. I had so many rich, interesting connections and conversations with people and it, it did. Huh. It, feel, it felt like a superpower in the way you like. Instead of looking down at the ground, you're actually looking and scanning and meeting people's con- uh, eye contact and smiling. Right. And I stopped doing that after a while because I got busy and doing other things, and I was no longer focused on healing. And I've completely lost that, and I'm now back to base where I don't. I don't like doing that anymore. Sure. Um, and yet, some people the that, natural state of humanity is that what you're saying? I, well, but I w- what made me think of this is this weekend over Memorial Day weekend, their pool just opened up in the apartment, and there's this really girl, this old lady that lives on the apartment across um, across the yard from me, uh-huh. who like every single time she'd see me outside would strike up a conversation with me. Uh, and I was talking to her, and she had her grandson at the pool, and she was talking about how, and her daughter was there, and her daughter was saying that like. My mom has never met a stranger. Like, okay. within five minutes, she's made a new best friend. And I'm like, that's such an alien experience to live your whole life. And 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 when someone shuts you down, not to think, oh, well, I shouldn't open my mouth, but to think, oh, what an asshole. I'm going to move on with my life. Like, that's like, no. Like, how do you live that open-hearted to everyone? Sure. Don't is ask it me. exhausting? Like, does that like? It sounds exhausting to me. Yeah. Are you even living your own life, or are you just living your life by proxy through everyone else's experiences? I don't know. I feel like people who are like that, because because I would have an impossible time maintaining a friend network of more than ten people. Yeah, same. Uh, but I, I just do. can't do it. But then there are people who I think do their own thing to the extent that other people want to be around them, and so mm. those other people make the effort to to pursue their friendship. Yeah. Uh, and those people don't have to like consciously say, "Oh, well, I need to talk to so and so." It's been a while, yeah, because so and so is calling them. So and so is making an effort is is making their own effort, yeah, to pursue that relationship. So I think I used to be real pejorative about like you know if you have more than a handful of people you consider your best friends, then you don't have any best friends. But now mm-hmm. I'm yeah. s- starting to suspect that maybe some people just have. I mean, I do think there is that phenomenon where you just have these shallow surface level connections with a bunch of people. But I also think there's some people that just have more of whatever internal reserve that they have more of themselves to give and they have more time and, and and, and they're less selfish and they have more time and attention they can pay and they can build deep relationships with multiple people. Uh, I just can't do it. But I'm not, I've gone, I don't judge those people. I just like, uh, that's a different way to live. And right. Uh, but it's yeah, it's 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 hard. Uh, and then finally, the point: the people's tendency to overlook and/or attribute significant meaning to strange and coincidental events, hmm. which is the other thing about this this old uh, conversation with the old woman uh, is that the topic turned to religion. Uh, and I mentioned that I'm like a, kind of a soft atheist because of my different experiences, and she asserted that. Um, well, you know, everybody needs the Bible and everybody needs Christ. And I'm like, well, the thing is, I've never had a personal relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. I've never had a person that personal relationship. And she she goes, well, I did. And it's this time 
I drove a Ford Explorer through an intersection, mm-hmm. and someone pulled out in front of me, and I whipped the wheel hard enough that the Ford Explorer should have flipped, but it didn't. How, what do you mean, should have flipped? And I said that. I said, Patty, I said, isn't that just a coincidence? Like, you thought it should flip, and it didn't. Isn't that you just misjudging the weight and physics of the situation? <laughs> and I'm like, did, I said, did you actually feel Christ in your heart at that moment? She goes, I did. And I'm like, well, I can't argue with that. Right. But what I'm saying, like, yeah. I always think of, like, you know, like a voice in your head or like a feeling of this omnipresent love in your heart at a particular point in your life. And she's talking about random coincidence. I've had an experience like that. I just don't attribute it to some cosmic uh, deity. Mm. Like I've I've I was at an intersection one time, uh, kind of just looking down at my phone real quick before the light changed, uh-huh. and it took me a second to look back up and notice the light had changed. And in that moment, a car drove right past me, uh, cr- like crashed over the curb and hit a Kentucky Fried Chicken sign, like right in front of me. And had I actually took taken off when I normally would when the mm-hmm. light was green, mm-hmm. uh, I would have been hit by that car. Well, there you go. You're so, like, denying Christ, Jim. It's a it's a fucking coincidence. Yeah, it's it's just a thing that happens. Yeah, it's not frogs and a gun falling out of the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like that there are people that have genuinely religious experiences. Of course, I would attribute it to some other emergent phenomenon in their brain and neurological structure. Right. But I do believe there are legitimate ex- religious experiences that if you have them at certain points in your life are probably hard to deny or get over. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I don't understand why people yeah, yeah. would attribute it to something like that. I'm just saying that they are, they are the ones attributing it yeah. to that deity or to whatever they're attributing it to. Certainly not. There's nothing inherent about the situation that makes it a miracle. No, like I always said, you know, um, literally in times coming or if God speaks to me, I'm either crazy or God speaking to me. Either way, I'm not probably in a position to deny the call. Sure. That's how I left it with sure. her. I just kind of laughed and like, well, you know, the way I feel like is God knows where I'm at. If he wants me, according to the good book, he, he's got various means of getting a hold of me. It's true. So, um, ah. Uh, I okay, I feel like yeah. we've covered Magnolia. Only half the runtime of the movie, not, not double that we're that sometimes get up to. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you, Alex, for having awesome people such as Lauren, Ann, and Rick that uh, chip together to, to, to buy this uh, present for you. And Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, early Christmas for 2016. Right. If uh, I mean, I, I, maybe we should do a better job marketing this. Um, well, maybe not because we're clearly swamped and we have too many that yeah. even raising the price it hasn't uh, slowed down the tide but uh it is i think a pretty good gift idea like mm-hmm. um you know especially if you want to chip together but uh, if you want to buy buy one for yourself or buy one for a loved one uh to, to try to, for, to forge those personal connections are so hard mm-hmm. in today's de- uh, 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 modern age uh you can go to ballmove.com slash shop and click on the big film canister and it will take you to the various options there's uh, some things on the menu where uh you know, you can you can pitch ten dollars at a time with your other fellow fans to try to get a movie commission. We're going to be doing one of those uh, coming up, a Lost Commission podcast, yeah, based maybe, on the community chipping together. Maybe you have like a, a loved one on their deathbed, and and you you know that they can hear you. You know they can fucking hear you, you asshole. Yeah. Just take those earbuds, shove them in, and, and commission, commission a podcast what dreams for may them. Come or right. something to make you want to blow your head off, uh, and, uh, <laughs> ease them into the nightlands. What or so. what? What kind of what kind of dark madness are we trying to encourage here? Uh, or you can uh, just you know 
commission your own film, mm-hmm. like Magnolia. Uh, Maybe then... you've made a film. Maybe you've made a short film. Or, oh, God, uh... no. Yeah, no. commission If you've that. made a film, do not put me in a position where you're paying me to judge it. It will not go well for anyone. Please, no. Void. That's probably Offer true. void. Offer void in all states and all countries. Uh, but yeah, unless you're move... Paul Thomas Anderson, and then sure, sure, yeah, I think that's that's a safe bet. If you want to throw us a couple hundred bucks to review your movie, anyway, ballmove.com/shop. We'll be back uh, next time for what is the one coming up? Uh, Magnum PI. That should be an interesting. Oh, one. it's a completely zigzag situation. Oh yeah. Um, get ready for your mustaches and your mirrored glasses and your helicopters and your Lamborghinis and your ice cream suits. Get it all, all the on good stuff for Magnum PI. We'll be back with that next. Until then, I'm Aaron. I'm Jim. Bye-bye. See ya. <laughs>